You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Acts 19, verse 21. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines to Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have made our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only to this trade of ours, that not only this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed of her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Then they heard, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly." For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. This is the word of the Lord. God, Father, we love you and we praise you. And we're so thankful you're a generous God who has spoken to us through your son, spoken to us through your word, spoken to us Uh, Through your spirit, we ask now that you would continue to speak to us as we study what's true and right and good. Would you make us more like your son? We love you. We thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. 
Well, welcome. Tonight is a torch night. Uh, and so what that means, if you are uh, within the age group of fourth to sixth grade, you can gather over here with Cedric and Aaron. Uh, They're going to lead you through the scriptures in a way that you can understand it a little better. Oh, Debbie's going to go as well. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Maybe. Yes. Wonderful. And so if you are fourth to sixth grade, you are welcome to go. We got a few this evening. Um, and great. Wonderful. You guys have a good evening tonight. And we um, are, I'm welcoming you this evening, and I'm thankful that you're here. If Christmas and Easter are the church services that people who don't often attend church are likely to attend, then I think Memorial Day is the opposite of that. It is the church service that most people who are likely to attend church don't. And so I'm really glad that you are here. If you are here, you're probably a part of one of three groups. One being um, you're the faithful and you love the word, and I'm just going to put you all in that group. I know you're faithful and you love to be here. Uh, two, you have to work on Monday, and I'm sorry for that. We're obviously uh, thankful for our, our veterans and what they do, and so we're excited to celebrate them. Um, or three, you, you booked your Airbnb too late or your camping spot was taken, and so you had to make a staycation. But either way, you're here, and I'm really glad that you're here. My name's Kyle. I am a pastor here at Christ Church, and I welcome you. If I don't know you, I would really like to get to know you. I actually welcomed a few people I didn't know um, on the way in, trying to tell you to, how to get the liturgy going because our projectors were broken. Um, and so if I don't know you, I'd love to get to know you. I'm going to be here at uh, the bottom of the stage at the end of the service, so welcome. And if I already do know you, I would also like to say hi to you. And so shout out to those I do know. I love you guys. Um, we're in the book of Acts. Uh, if you've been with us, you've been with us in the book of Acts for a really long time. Uh, we've been studying this for about a year, and actually we can start to see the light at the end of the tunnel. We are in uh, ending chapter 19, going into chapter 20. Paul is ending his third missionary journey and soon going to be heading back to Jerusalem. Um, and when you study a book like we have this long, it's really easy to get tunnel vision. Okay, so if you've read a long book in the Old Testament or a long book, uh, maybe a gospel, or like we have the book of Acts, it's easy to kind of each week or each morning you read it, you flip it open and you think, okay, what's this story about? Okay, what's this story about? And you, and you start to read it as little disconnected stories instead of as a story as a whole, as, as Luke intended us to read it. If you remember, Nathan has been saying ever so often through this series that this is a, a book, a letter about the acts of the Holy Spirit. In the book of Acts, Luke is recounting the amazing things that Jesus said would happen. Luke desires to share with the world that God is not a liar. The gospel is going out just like Jesus said it would. The Old and New Testament made it clear that all the earth would be blessed through Israel. And we are watching that unfold as God has given Paul favor in the Gentile cities he's been preaching in the last few chapters. At this point in Acts, Christianity has not only seen favor in terms of small churches starting, in terms of people converting to Christianity, but they've also seen favor in large political settings. If you remember in, in uh, chapter 18, we saw Gaius, um, is it Gaius? Did I write that down right? Yeah, Gallio. He refused to hear a case. The Jews brought the Christians, and Gallio was like, uh, I don't know what this is about. I don't know what you're talking about. And then, uh, and just kind of said, I don't, I don't want to hear any, any more about this. And tonight, we see the same thing happen in what was just read by Patrick. We see a political leader. This clerk was what, one of the highest in the city. You could tell he was worried and nervous that a riot was about to start, and he was about to get in trouble. And he again says, hey, there's nothing here. There's nothing we should be talking about. That's a win. That's God's favor. That's like akin to someone appealing to the ninth 
uh, circuit court or to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court saying, you know, we're not going to hear this. Uh, we as a culture, we as Americans know that if the Supreme Court's not going to listen, then most likely there's, there's not going to be anything ruled on it. It's not uh, something they want to hear. So when reading the Bible, it's important to keep that in mind. It's, it's helpful when you read the Bible to ever so often ask yourself, what does the writer of this book want me to know? What is he saying? What was his point? And then on the flip side of that coin is what was, like when his original hearers heard this or read this letter or heard it read, what did they understand? It's clear, among other things, that Luke is highlighting that God is giving Christians favor as he is faithfully making good on the promises that he made even with Abraham. All the way back in Genesis chapter 12, the families of the earth are being blessed, not through the nation Israel necessarily, but through Jesus, the promised Christ who came from Israel. And in the midst of all of this big picture, all of these kind of big Supreme Court cases, we're seeing these stories, these couplets of stories. Last week, there were two stories told, and Nathan taught us about that, two different baptisms. One, um, there were men who had been baptized um, into the baptism of John, and, and God, in his faithfulness and sovereignty, sent gospel sharers to proclaim that baptism of repentance is kind of only half the story. John came and prepared the way, but Jesus came and secured the way, right? He made the way. He is the way. And so Nathan preached on that, and that those stories put together. And this afternoon, we're going to look at two stories Luke uses to highlight the work of Christ in the early church, the sons of Sceva and the riot in Ephesus. These smaller stories of the victory of the gospel are framed by the two larger stories of the political winds. And though there are a lot of difficult things that Luke could have written about, he saw fit to highlight that the, get, the gates of hell had no power against this growing church, literally the gates of hell. Jesus is not a liar. Everything God has said will come true and is coming true. All authority has been given to Jesus. His people are taking the gospel to places it has never been, and Jesus is present. He's with them. Jesus is with his people is what Luke wants us to know. So we're going to look at it. I had great slides, uh, just amazing. I spent time on them. Our projectors aren't working. I had like pictures of demons. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but um, I had these words up on a slide, and that's pretty good for me. But our three points are going to be this. First, Christ reigns over the demonic. Second, Christ reigns over the material world. And third, Christ reigns over all of the spiritual world, over the spiritual world. And so those are three points. Let's get into it. So I had Patrick read just the second story because the two stories put together was a little much. But I'll recap the sons of Sceva for you, okay? We didn't read it, but here's how it goes. People are being healed by touching Paul's dirty laundry. Seven guys are attacked by a demon-possessed man who knows Jesus. They're beaten up and run away naked and wounded, and then a bunch of Christians burn their secret evil books. How's that for a Bible story? Super weird, right? Like, what is that? What's going on here? I think some of you thought, oh, he's going to skip it. He's not going to talk about that one. He's just going to, no, I'm going to talk about it. Come on. Um, there are a lot of things in this story that go against our modern sensibilities. If you just read it kind of in tunnel vision, like we talked about, at section after section in Acts, okay, here's the next story. It actually gives you a lot more questions than it gives you answers when you read a story like this. It's helpful to understand the story in light of the people of the ancient Near East, kind of like what Nathan talked about last week, and their common practices. And you take their common practices, you parallel that with what Luke is trying to make clear 
Um, and then you start to gain better understanding. So like last week with tongues, which was a common practice in the ancient Near East, we see another ancient Near East practice make its way onto the pages of Scripture. It was common belief that there were some people that if you touched them, you might be healed. Right? If you touched their cloak or if you were in their shadow, that's why Jesus was always surrounded by crowds. And not everyone. I mean, it's pretty safe to say that most people in the ancient Near East were sick with something. They had something, right? And not everybody was healed, but every once in a while, power would go out of Jesus and somebody would be healed. Same with Peter, right? It's safe to say that not every time he walked down the street, his shadow was healing, but people were jumping in his shadow, trying to become healed. And honestly, there's, it's still happening today. Some of you might have family members or friends or personally done it yourself, go on a pilgrimage, right? Here in New Mexico or to temples around the world claiming to have a drop of the blood of Jesus or maybe a sliver of the cross or a bone of a saint that could, if you were faithful and showed up, could heal you. Even some people travel around the world throwing conferences, right? If you just come, right? For a little small fee, come and be in my presence and then maybe God will heal you. So Paul's rags that were covered in his sweat going along with his ancient Near East practice were being carried away to the sick, and the sick were legitimately being healed. And if you're not careful, right, when you're reading this, if you don't take the time to ask what's going on, you will miss that Luke gives the credit of the healings to God specifically in verse 11. Look at verse 11. Luke put it plainly that God was doing the miracles. Paul was just the conduit. Paul did not set up a stand to sell his rags, right? He didn't immediately then say, oh, this is what's happening? Okay, let's build a temple, let's build a tent, bring all the sick, and we'll get this going. Paul didn't get distracted from his ministry. Paul preached Christ and Christ crucified, and God did miracles. Paul was faithful in his day job, and God healed the sick. It's easy to get distracted from God's clear calling of being faithful and sharing his love with the world. Humans need hope. You're going to hear me say that a few times this evening. We need hope. We crave it. We always have and we always will. So anytime something good happens, we seek to bottle it. We seek to package it. How can I control this? How can I make it mine? Anytime something bad happens, we run from it. And we think it's bad. It must not be good. And we confuse our security and how we feel with maybe God's favor or a blessing. We want miracles, so we practice magic. We want all of the good as long as we can somehow control it. Like Nathan mentioned last week in reference to tongues, this could be God using a common belief in the ancient Near East to point to the power of Jesus, this healing. Luke, however, made it clear that Paul did not start a healing ministry. He knew his calling. Chapter 9 recounts, in in Acts, chapter 9 recounts Christ's call on Paul's life, stating that he is a chosen instrument to carry his name to the Gentiles, not dirty rags, his name. So Paul let others carry the rags, and he labored in the day to support his ministry of preaching in the evening. I I don't know if I'd be like that. Like If all of a sudden my dirty laundry started healing people, I think it'd be easy to become distracted and think this must be what God wants and to forget what God has called me to, which is to love him and love others. He said it plainly over and over in Scripture. God told Paul, you were going to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul had wisdom and clarity not to get distracted by the healings God was doing, but to then ever more pointed and seriously preach the gospel that Jesus had sent him to preach. And so, in his wisdom, Luke put the next story 
this, uh, this story of these seven sons to contrast what Paul was doing. Paul was laboring faithfully, God was doing miracles, and then the seven sons of Sceva roll into town. What a name, right? The alliteration is awesome in English, but it's not there, you know, in the original language. But the point is there, right? The, the way that they presented themselves, the banner they waved when they rolled in, seven, what's that number of in the Bible? Do you guys know? Come on, let's, let's talk Baptists. Perfection, right? Seven, perfection. Next, sons, right? What did sons indicate in the ancient Near East? Blessing. So blessed to have one son, but this was perfect blessing, right? Sons. And then of Sceva, so this is kind of interesting. Sceva is not listed in the list of high priests that we have uh, from uh, the Jewish kind of time with the temple. But it was a common practice that if these people, uh, if somebody was connected to the high priest or kind of in his cabinet or around him enough, that they would also kind of claim the title of high priest. So these traveling tricksters, far from home, walked into town, and Luke wanted to expose them as frauds. Okay, so he, he knew something important was happening, that God was healing people, and the gospel was going forth. And these sons came, and Paul, not Paul, Luke wanted to make sure that this was separated from the legitimate work of the gospel. Again, this is another ancient Near East practice. These people would come in all the time. People were, were used to kind of these snake oil salesmen rolling into town um, and giving them a spiel, a song and a dance, maybe a magic trick, and then uh, they would give them money and leave with their pockets full. They had heard that Paul was proclaiming the name of Jesus, and by that name, miracles were happening. They saw an opportunity. They would do this in most cities. They would hear what's the local God, what's going on, and then they kind of use their tricks around that. And this time, when they invoked the name of Christ, the demons spoke back. Not what they expected. It kind of reminds me of the, of the medium in 1 Samuel when Saul comes to her and says, hey, I need to talk to Samuel. And she's like, okay, I'll try. And then when it actually works and Samuel comes forth, she screams, the text says. She's like, ah! She got way more than she bargained for. The demons of this story knew Jesus, and they knew they had to obey him. Demons of this story knew that Paul was directly connected to Jesus. So when these guys say, by the, the, by the Jesus that Paul proclaims, they're like, oh, I know Paul. If Paul was here, we'd have to leave. But I don't know you. Who are you? They were not connected to Jesus in any legitimate way, who reigns supremely in the universe and over the demonic and who promised to always be with his people. Remember that Great Commission promise? All authority in heaven and earth is mine, and I am with you always. What a gift that Jesus said. He is with his people. The demon-possessed man jumped on them, beat them up, and then ran them out. And it's interesting. If you contrast this with the demon-possessed man that, that Jesus comes with, uh, uh, onto in Mark 5, you get a very different story. So let's just kind of compare and contrast them. Jesus, one man, that man was possessed by many demons. His name was Legion, and there were many demons in that man. And this one, seven sons of Sceva, right? The boys, they walk up, one demon, okay? So there's a difference there. Second one, as soon as Jesus walks up to these men, they know, that these demons know, this man, they know, oh, this is the son of the Most High God. And they ask, please, don't cast us into the abyss. Here, the demons don't recognize him. They don't have a clue who this guy is. Jesus heals the man, casts out the demons. The man is now in his right mind. He is sitting, healed, no longer harming himself, and ready to walk in love and trust Jesus. Here, the, the exorcists leave naked and ashamed, 
definitely not in their right mind because a demon just spoke back to them. Right? That's the difference. Luke is wanting to make it clear that when Jesus moves, when God moves, something different is happening. So then we ask, like we said at the beginning, what's the author trying to make clear? What does he want the original audience to know? And I think he wants us to know that Christ reigns. He rules and reigns this universe. Though he's no longer with us physically in body, he still reigns. There's not a place on this earth he is not in authority over. He heals the sick. He rules over the demonic. And the name of Christ is being extolled, the text says. The fear of God is expanding and the church is growing. Luke is separating the work of God from the work of the world. Miracles are from God. Magic is from man. Christ is always at the center of legitimate miracles. Man is at the center of magic. When the Spirit works, Christ is magnified, he's made much of, and therefore God is glorified. And when, we, when, when man works, man is magnified, man is glorified, and it always results in shame and death. You've seen it over and over again, inside the church and outside the church, right? There's always that charismatic person in the news that's being exposed as a fraud, being exposed as a liar, being exposed as a magician. The modern sons of Sceva might enjoy their tricks for a moment, but they will be found out and their shame will always be exposed. This is why I think we should be like Paul in this story, who's barely mentioned. You know, if you, if, you, if you read it again, he's barely even mentioned. We should seek to be faithful. Faithful in our work, faithful in our gospel proclamation when we get the opportunity. We have no need to conjure up results because we know that God reigns. Too many people travel from town to town, church to church, ministry to ministry with their bag of tricks, serving in their own power only to move on to the next place when they're exposed. When their magic runs out, listen, Jesus does not want your tricks. He wants your heart. He's not after your magic. He's after who you are. He wants to know you. And we as your pastors, we know that life is hard and messy we know you are struggling and fighting against sin. We know you are struggling and fighting for faith. And we're the same. We're no different. We're no better. We're no above that fight. Our desire is that you look, not, not act and try to look perfect or seem perfect, put on a perfect face. Our desire is that you trust in the one who is perfect. That you faithfully pursue him. That you know how he loves you and desires you to form, uh, to form you in his image. We're confident that when you grow in your faithfulness to Christ and when you receive his love, we know that the rest will follow. We know you'll grow in holiness. We know you'll grow in love and gospel proclamation, but it starts, starts with a miracle. It starts with Jesus. In Matthew 7, Jesus tells the magicians, that he, they're not called magicians, but they're these guys saying, hey, we've been around, we've been doing a lot of stuff in your name, right? We've seen a lot of cool stuff in your name. He tells those people, depart from me for I never knew you. They did so much, but they never found the rest in Christ. They didn't know him. And it's funny because in my, I don't know, 10 or 12 years of ministry, time after time, this verse has haunted people. They come into my office saying, what if, what if I approach Christ on that day and he says, depart from me, I never knew you. They haunt so many of us, these verses, but they should set you free if you're in Christ. Christ has the power. He has the authority. He accomplishes the ministry. He calls you to himself. He wants to know you. He wants you to be faithful to him. He wants you to repent and believe in his completed work and find rest for your soul. We've been made new. 
and the king over all of existence, even the demonic, dwells in us and calls us to love him, knowing that when his people love him, they will love the world that's around them. And here's a shameless plug. It's a commercial, so get ready. Next week, I don't know if Mr. M is here. Hey, he's here. Hands right up. So Mr. M is here, and he is teaching a seminar on culturality. I Googled it. I still don't understand the word. And so if you are like me, then this seminar is for you. Okay? And so we just talked about being confident that when, when the love of God is in you, the love of God will come out of you. And as I've talked with him a bit about this seminar, that's what it's about. It's about the, the great commandment and then the following commandment. As you love God, your love for people grows. And, and his desire is to have a, um, a seminar on how our love for people who aren't like us should grow because we are deeply, deeply loved. If you're not signed up for that, it's in the weekly email. Is it on our website? I don't know how to computer. Yeah, thumbs up. It's on our website. You can go. Please sign up for that. Please just make it known that you're going to be here. You can talk to me. You can talk to Sophia. You can talk to Mr. M. We would love to connect you to that information. Okay, commercial over. Second point, if Christ rules over the demonic, then Christ also must rule over the material world. Luke explains how this active power that recognizes Jesus' authority over the spiritual world doesn't just stay in the spiritual world, but it moves into the material world. When the new believers of the city saw the power of God on display, they burned their books. Now, before we go crazy and start a bonfire, we need to, we need to understand what these books represent. Okay, this is, this is less about burning Harry Potter and more about burning your 401k, okay? And so, so Paul, um, and, and not Paul, Luke is concerned with you understanding what this represented. Acts 19, 18 says, also many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. So we're not entirely sure or clear what these practices were that were being divulged. I mean, we got a couple of clues. The practices could have been hiding these books because they're extremely valuable. We're, we're, I think that's like 150 years worth of wages is what that, there's those, you know, those Bible calculators, just Google it. You can go figure out how much a bath is or an EFAF or these coins as well. So uh, that could be it. They were just had their retirement plan and their sinful divulgence was what they were hoping in that. It could be that these books were full of evil kind of magic spells that if this Jesus thing doesn't work out, we'll just go back to that. Okay, so we don't really for sure know what the evil practices that were being divulged are. We have some hints, but either way, they were burned. All hope in the things of this world were abandoned and placed squarely on the name of Jesus. He's the king of both the spiritual and the physical world. Their money and their magic were turned to ashes, as verse 20 says. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Like I mentioned above, and I'll continue to mention, humanity craves hope. We desire security, so we go through great lengths to create it for ourselves. And the question I ask is, what do you hope in? Here's what's crazy. Okay, this story says a, a, an act of power of Jesus went out, and these people saw that, were confronted with their sin, and immediately went and burned what they were hoping in. Do you know what's funny? When the, word, when, when the Spirit's working in us, okay, we feel it. I don't know if it's in a worship service when you're just, I just love those songs tonight. When you're singing, when you're reading God's Word, when you're, I don't know, meeting and visiting with a friend, you can just feel the Spirit of God moving. You know what often comes after that? Guilt and shame. Right? You're like you're just walking with Christ. You're, you're, you're loving God. You're so thankful for what he's accomplishing in your life. And immediately you're confronted with the reality that you're a fraud. You're hiding. God, 
Brothers and sisters, that's the Holy Spirit. That's what's happening in this city. And the beauty is these people allowed the power of God to transform them. Instead of just saying like, oh, that was an okay moment, and then feeling guilty and leaving in shame, they went to their closets, got their books, and burned them, and you can do the same. Hiding sin always leads to death. It never brings life. God is not just like squishing you when he does that. He's seeking to set you free. You know that. I'm tired of brothers and sisters feeling guilty and ashamed all the time because they go to church, they love God, they know he's real, that's welling up inside of them. The spirit convicts them and brings these realities before them and instead of running and grabbing their books, they shove it down. And then they wonder, why do I feel this way? What an example our brothers and sisters in Ephesus gave us. These young believers in Ephesus understood that the truth that they forsook, the shame and their doubt, they forsook it. They didn't care that they were going to be exposed. And they brought it into the light for the world to see. In Ephesus, the whole city watched as their hope in the things of this world turned to ashes and the name of Jesus was magnified. Humanity has always placed its hope in things. And God has always called us away from that foolishness to himself. Adam, a thing. An apple, to become like God, to know God, to, to control some magic piece, to kind of go around the cross, go around trusting Jesus. And all of us have done exactly the same. We have all gone our own way, and that's why Christ came to die, to save a people from their sin, from loving lesser things to loving a God who is worthy of their love and who can love them back. And this, I mean, freedom from the love of money and the false sense of security, it brings, I think, is an undeniable miracle of the gospel. And I know we're like, miracle, yeah, like, like a baby being born. I hate to burst your bubble, it's not a miracle. It's beautiful. It's not a miracle, right? Miracles are this. God has set natural order, right? So baby being born is actually the opposite of a miracle. It's the most natural thing that happens. Right? It's beautiful, but it's not a miracle. It would be a miracle, I can't drop my notes because then I can't preach, I'd freeze. But if I drop my notes and they just hovered, that would be a miracle. Because this, the natural was, was then affected by the supernatural. Right? And naturally, we love money. Naturally, we put our hope in it. And I think even, just, even the new wave of minimalism in our culture is a great example of that. Christian generosity exists because we do not believe that this world is our home. That's what happens. That's the miracle. We're changed. We're freed from the need of possessions and the hope and identity that they bring. And the current obsession with minimalism in our culture is a great example. Against that, in my opinion, Christians seek to minimize their possessions because we already possess the most valuable thing in the universe, which is the Spirit of God in us. Our identity is secure, so we seek to be generous and not be defined by the things that we own or the things that we don't own. We're freed to view our money as a gift to be stewarded for our own good and for the good of others around us. Contrast that with even just, mi so minimalism sounds like the opposite of that, right? Getting rid of stuff. Seems noble, it's wrapped in an attempt to find hope and identity in being a person who has less stuff. It doesn't matter if your house is filled with stuff or doesn't have any stuff. You can still be controlled by stuff, right? You can give away money and still be enslaved to it. It's all about your heart. It's all about your new mind, how you view it. Please don't hear me say, so this is like, oh, you think every Christian is super generous and everyone, no. I know that every Christian, we're not all generous. We're not all freed from the love of money. The Spirit has a lot of work to do in my life in that regard. 
Nor am I saying that every generous non-Christian that's ever given is just a fraud. I I love it when non-Christians seek to alleviate the poor. What I'm saying is that the power of Jesus changes how people view and use money and possessions. It lifts our eyes from our own worldly goals and it secures our hope firmly in riches yet to come. And that's a miracle. That's what Luke is showing us by putting these two stories side by side. When the gospel grows in the hearts of believers, our hope in the things of this world wanes. It goes away. It disappears. We know that one of the reasons Paul was really wanting to get back to Jerusalem is because the poor churches of the Gentiles had made a collection of money, and he wanted to bring that back to the church. Now, you guys are like, yeah, that makes sense. Crowdfunding, NATO, World Health Organization, that all makes sense. doesn't make sense. In the ancient Near East, this is unprecedented. It was was not done. The Jews can figure out themselves. They can take care of themselves. Their God should be taking care of them. We'll figure out ourselves. And if they fail, we'll go take them over. That was the mindset. There There was no like philanthropy for nations. I think that's a good thing that it's grown, but it wasn't here. This is a miracle. This this makes no sense in the context of the ancient Near East that poor people were putting their money together to send to another nation to bless poor people. That's the spirit of Christ. That's what's happening in these stories. That's what Luke wants you to know. It changes you. It transforms you. And if the freedom from, uh, from fear and hoping in the things of this world was enjoyed by the Christian, then Luke puts, puts the response of those who didn't know Christ right under it. He wanted to contrast that. Acts 19, 20, 25 and 26 says this, They gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. This scene is often presented just as greed. When I was was growing up, I I think I heard this preach, it's like, these guys, as soon as they started losing money, then they got mad. I don't think that's only what's happening. These men were losing money, right? So they got nervous and gathered to make a plan, but they're losing more than money. The loss of money exposed a much deeper loss that they were incruing. It exposes their source of hope going away. The hope that leads the Christians above to burn their retirement plans has caused despair and fear in the hearts of those who had nothing greater to hope in. Luke wanted to highlight that. He wanted us, one, he wanted to highlight just how horrible praying on the weak was. These sons of Sceva were horrible men coming and, and promising things, taking money, and then leaving, right? These, these temple, like temples were driven on fear. fear. Fear Artemis. Come, and maybe she'll bless you. Buy a statue and take it home, and maybe she'll be with you. This was all based on fear and money, manipulating. That's all this was. Luke wanted to highlight that. He was highlighting how the gospel had the power to heal how it had the power to cast out demons and to free people from the destructive culture of greed and oppression. Hear me say this. The prosperity gospel is a lie. It's a lie. Any gospel that calls you to Jesus promising you healing and riches and anything in return for your money is a false gospel from the pit of hell. The gospel of Jesus calls you from darkness to light, from death to life, from this life to the next life. It's a free gift that demands your heart, not your wallet. Christ knows that where your heart is, your money will follow. He's not concerned. He's transformed millions and millions of souls 
and those souls have funded you probably receiving the gospel. Isn't that crazy? Praise God for the faithful. Hear this. The promise of the Bible is Jesus. Period. Your greatest need is Jesus. The reward in heaven is Jesus. The golden streets are Jesus. The pearly gates are Jesus. He's the treasure. He's the pearl of great price. And those who put their trust in him will not be put to shame. He's the centerpiece of all reality. All of the promises of God find their yes in him. The body they may kill. You've sung it so many times. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. I'm not in control of liturgy or we would have sung that song this evening. Any false gospel, any career, any relationship, and so on that promises you any semblance of security apart from Christ will be exposed as false. It will happen. It's happened in your life many times and it will continue to happen. And that's what's happening here in Ephesus. That's what's happening to these men who are building these uh, idols and have this industry. Their hope in false gods is failing them. Which brings us to our last point this evening, that Christ reigns over the spiritual world. He reigns over the demonic, he reigns over the material, and he reigns over the spiritual. It's clear that these craftsmen understood that their entire way of life was hanging in the balance. Life as they knew it in, a great, in the great city of Ephesus was being confronted by Jesus. Not just their economy was being attacked, but the very fibers of their entire existence were, were unraveling. It's funny. Because honestly, I don't think they overreacted. I think Demetrius had it right. right? He's like, hey, this is a problem. The clerk's like, eh, kind of minimizing it, but he saw it. Much like the Jews in chapter 18, the Ephesians saw what the kingdom of Christ was capable of. Let's read this, Acts 19, 26 and 27. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there's a danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrespect, disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she, she may be even deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Like I mentioned above, the first indication something was wrong was that their bottom line was shrinking, but they knew what that meant. Like if nobody was buying idols, that meant nobody was coming to Ephesus. Less people were coming. If less people were coming to Ephesus, that means that less people were fearing Artemis. And if less people are fearing Artemis, their God will disappear. The temple will disappear. Demetrius, he got it. He knew exactly what was happening. And the temple of Artemis is today counting as nothing but a ruin. You can go visit it. It's a great tourist trap. Stacks of rocks. You want to know what's crazy? The temple of Christ is here today. Bricks, not rocks made of flesh, filled with the Holy Spirit, worshiping the same Jesus that the people in Ephesus 2,000 years ago were worshiping. Jesus reigns over the spiritual. The same Jesus is here today. It's no accident. It's no coincidence. Artemis has been deposed. Praise God. And the world worships Jesus. That's crazy. They're like, the whole world worships Jesus or worships Artemis. The world worships Jesus. This is no exaggeration. The gospel is penetrating the world. People group after people group are finding their hope in Christ and turning from their magic ways to the miracle of a new heart and a new life found in Jesus. And you want to know how that's funded? By you. That makes no sense. 
giving your money to people you don't know, that they'll go to places you'll never go to, to talk to people you'll never meet, that they might somehow find Jesus. That's a miracle. God has changed your heart. Praise him for that. Find comfort and rest that he is working in you. Christ's church, I'm so thankful for this church and their generosity. This is Christ's sovereign reign over all things spiritual. God says in the Old Testament in Isaiah, he says, a voice says cry, and I say, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, cry that. All its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Jesus said it like this, and this gospel of this kingdom shall be preached as a testimony to all the nations, and only then, only then will the end of this world come. He has set it in place. The church exists today not because a bunch of weak people invented a God to help them get through their pathetic lives. Religions like that have been invented, and they're gone. They don't last. We exist today because God ordained it, Jesus secured it, and the Holy Spirit applies it. That's why we're here. Without the sovereign hand of God orchestrating history and sending his spirit, there is no way Christianity would last. Just like the temple of Artemis, everything made by human hands fades, but the word of the Lord will last forever. Do you believe that? Does that bring you hope? You need that hope because there's a world out there that believes a lot that's different, and they're very passionate about it. It shouldn't confuse us when the world rages, when they're excited about the next new thing, when they're excited about the next new political agenda, when the, the next new whatever it is. And often, me, I'm like, man, they seem legitimate. They seem passionate. They don't know Jesus, but they seem like they're getting it. The word of God will live forever. These things will fade, but he will not. And here's what's crazy. So now at the end of this, so we have this riot. We have these people going crazy shouting great is Artemis for two hours and Paul wants to run right into the middle of that. Makes no sense. When I, I'm like, when stuff's going down, I'm like one of those guys that's like, oh, you know, some of those guys are like, what's going on? And I'm like, what's going on? Yeah, okay. You know, it's like, I'm the guy that would be going the other way. What is, what's going on in Paul? What's happening in his life? What's happened in this man's life that makes him think that moving into this mob that will absolutely kill him is a good idea? Here's what I think. What kind of person is, does that? One who understands that Christ reigns over the demonic. There is no authority in this world that does not recognize his reign. One who understands that Christ reigns over the material. Life itself is not more valuable than obeying the God of the universe. Paul knew that. One who understands that Christ reigns over the spiritual, his kingdoms forever. Paul didn't know. He knew he was supposed to be a proclaimer. He didn't know when he would die. He didn't know when Jesus would come back. But he knew that Jesus' kingdom, no matter what, would go forth. He had confidence in that, and that led him to want to run into the middle of this crazy mob. That's clarity. We need that clarity more than ever. I have to confess that often that clarity, it eludes me. I often live like God exists, but does he rule my life, really? Does he reign? I live like God's important, but my car is important, and my home's important, and my retirement investments are also very important. I live like my faith is valuable, but it's not worth my life. You want me to die for that? Walk into what crowd, Lord? It's a little risky. How do I keep from my faith from becoming another ritual added to my day? How do I avoid the magic of Christian living and religious practices? 
How do I ward off the doubt that sneaks in when I witness the passion of people who do not know Christ, who do not know God, yet are so convinced that what they do know is better? What am I to do? If I had the answer to that, I'd be just like the sons of Sceva. I'd sell it to you, make a ton of money, and leave. No, just kidding. I would give it to you. If I, if I could just lay out a step-by-step practice, just do this, and you'll have the confidence of the gospel, I would. I don't have that. I don't have the silver bullet that just penetrates every heart the same. But what I do have, based on the text today, I would encourage you to forsake the, the pursuit of man-made magic and focus on the miracle of Christ in you. So often, man, if God would only cast out a demon right in front of me, if you'd only heal a guy right here, I, then I would have faith. You're, you're neglecting the fact that you were dead, but now you're alive. You were deaf, but now you hear. You were blind, but now you see. Focus on the miracle Christ has done in you and quit trying with the magic and the foolishness of this world. Forsake the lie that hiding sin is safe and bring it to the light. There's nothing in this universe that Christ does not reign over, so trust his reign in you. Seek to be faithful in your work and be faithful in your sharing the love of Christ when you have opportunity. Trust him when he says that he will never leave you or forsake you. Trust him when he says that when you come to him, you will find rest for your soul. Trust him when he says that you have the better thing. He is the treasure hidden in a field. He is the pearl of great price. He is the answer to your brokenness. He's the hope your soul was created to find rest in. Trust him. If you're here today and you've not trusted Christ, I would love to talk to you after this service. Altar calls have they've fallen out of style, so I can't do one. But... I'm going to be standing right here, and I would love to talk to you about the gospel. I would love to talk to you about how he's transformed me and how he can transform you. And if you are here and you are in Christ, but you're struggling to allow him to reign over areas of your life, come talk to me. Talk to your GC leader. Talk to the person sitting next to you. Let's burn our hidden books and fix our hope securely and perfectly on Christ that we might be satisfied and that his name might be magnified. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we praise you, and we worship you, and we thank you, Jesus, that you reign. You reign over all things. You reign over the demonic. You reign over the material. You reign over the spiritual world, and you have said that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that you are Lord, and we await that day, but as we do, we ask that you would help us. Would you help us trust you? Would you help us transfer our hope from the things of this world to the things that you have done and completed and accomplished on our behalf? Would you give us the freedom that the gospel promises? Would you give us courage to confess our sins and allow our doubt to be exposed and allow the gospel to heal us and transform us and change us? Ultimately, would you glorify your Father? We love you. We worship you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.